the Shy Chat Podcast, stories that connect. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Shy Chat Podcast. I'm your host, Peter Reimholt, and I'm glad you've joined us again. As we begin a new fiscal year, it is easy to look forward to 2021 and what new adventures are around the corner. Although I'm as ready as the next person to exit 2020, I'm trying to stay upbeat and send positive vibes for an improved finish to 2020. As I record this episode, I'm currently looking out my window at the sun reflecting off the changing leaves of fall. I'm even thinking about taking a walk outside to enjoy the prime Midwest weather that allows for the classic outfit of shorts and a hoodie. Our next story highlights the journey of partner Brian Heckler. During our recent discussion, Brian emphasized the themes of dedication and perseverance paying dividends throughout his 30-plus year career at KPMG. When he would pursue something new or different, he was continually met with the phrase, if you want to try, go ahead. And try, he did. From his humble beginnings as an audit associate in a 40-person office in Harrisburg, PA, to global lead partner for multiple Fortune 500 companies, and now the national sector leader for industrial manufacturing, Brian has never turned down opportunities for growth. He shares his fascinating story of how he got to where he is today, lessons learned along the way, and opines that if I can do it, anyone can. Well, Brian, thanks for coming on to the uh, Shot Chat podcast here. Uh, I know you've done a lot in your career at KPMG, but I'd like to start out and try to figure out who the real Brian Heckler is and maybe start with your background. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, you can kind of start where you grew up and how you made it to KPMG. Peter, I've been trying to figure out who the real Brian Heckler is all my life and I'm still <laughs> learning. So, um, yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I grew up in, uh, you know, probably one of the smallest towns in, in uh, Western Pennsylvania, no sidewalks, no red lights, hardly anyone went to college. You know, my graduating high school class was like a hundred people and, and to be where I am today and what I've been able to do through KPMG is just a miracle. So how did you uh, get inspired to go to college and to pursue an accounting degree if that wasn't the norm in your town? Yeah, it's interesting. When, when I was in 10th grade, and, and I've got like a junior and senior in high school right now, it's so interesting to watch their journey. But for me, it was like no one went to college, so I didn't want to go to college. My, my aspiration was to be an auto mechanic. And my parents who were, uh, didn't have the benefit to go to college or just high school graduates, they were like, you're going to college. Just put all that other stuff out of your mind. <laughs> you can do all that as a hobby, but you're going to college. Uh, so that was really the inspiration. Wow. Okay. So then you're in high school, you're thinking, I'm going to be an auto mechanic. Your parents are like, that's nice. No, you're going. So uh, where'd you end up going to school? How'd you choose that? And how'd that whole journey begin? <clears throat> so my brother is older than I am, and he, he went to college and was always a great student. And I was kind of a mediocre and wasn't all that passionate about it, but, but uh, I applied to Penn State and I applied at uh, Shippensburg University and coming from a small town, you know, Shippensburg felt a little more intimate for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it was more of a business school and the Penn State path would have been architecture, uh, which would have been cool too. And uh, I ended up at this small college in the fields of central Pennsylvania uh, and you know, the day I walked onto campus, it was like the opportunity to start over. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I put behind pretty much all my friends from high school. They all went different paths. And, you know, there I was, you know, kind of paying to go to college. And for some reason, it clicked for me at that time that I could be a good student. And I love to learn. And, you know, thank God that happened for me, you know, going into college. Wow. Okay. So then at that point, did you know you were, wanted to pursue accounting? And <laughs> no idea. I, I really, like, my parents didn't know anything about college. And although my brother did, he went into the fine arts route. So no one knew anything about business. And I signed mm-hmm. up for real estate because that sounded like that was cool. And, uh, you know, just enjoyed the first couple of years of school and taking all the general ed classes and the business-related foundations. And there were two things I really enjoyed. I found, like, I really, I like the, the accounting classes, the general mm-hmm. initial accounting, and I really like the business law class. And they just appealed to me for some reason, and it seemed like you could learn a lot. So I think by sophomore year, end of sophomore year, you had to make a choice, and I switched majors to accounting and have uh, just really enjoyed the way of learning about business through the way that CFOs and accounts and controllers and auditors can kind of see how everything fits together and works. Yes, and is that what then drove you to pursue life at public accounting and KPMG? (laughs) It's interesting. So uh, um, all the big eight firms plus a couple local firms. So there are probably like 10 or 11 firms that used to come and recruit at Shippensburg. And, mm-hmm. you know, what it, what helped me was the structure of the process. It was like you go and you sign up for an interview. It eliminated having to worry about, like, figuring out where to go apply. And uh, they all came on campus and I met with them all and plus a couple other uh, public companies at the time. I got offers from one public company and about four or five accounting firms. And the second interview was in, in the office. And I really went by the feel of how the people seemed. Um, And I ended up picking Pete Mark Mitchell, which was a small office in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, of 40 people. The big powerhouse in town was Maine Herdman. They had about 200. Okay. Uh, And, um, EMY was over in Reading, Pennsylvania. PwC was not in town, or Pricewaterhouse was not in town. Mm-hmm. Arthur Anderson was in Baltimore. This one public company is in Pittsburgh. So I kind of went also to, like, where do I want to live? Yeah. And Harrisburg felt like the next step up for me, town-wise. Um, and it was close by, and it just felt right. Well, that's great. And uh, so can you tell us a little bit more about starting in an office of that few people. I mean, a lot of us in Chicago are used to an office of 3000 people, you know, so how was it with, you know, one of 40? You know, it was a real family and, uh, there, there's people still in the firm today from that first group of people and they're still, uh, friends. I wish I got to connect with them more. And, you know, the nice thing about it is it was intimate. It was small. It was like, mm-hmm. we knew everyone that, office managing partner had a huge heart and we would go to the country club for a Christmas party and everyone would get a gift from a customer product and we had golf outings and it was a a really nice way to feel part of. And I got to tell you, I felt part of the KPMG family for, you know, the 36 years ever since. And uh, it was an important element for me 
because you know coming from kind of a smaller community i needed i needed to feel like i belonged like in a group and mm-hmm. you know the other cool thing about a small account or a small office like that is i got to do a lot of stuff like i i had audits that were a week long or audits that were 3 months long and i probably had 20 or 30 audits in my first several years and Wow. all kinds of different things and it was a great way to learn and it was a great way to see a lot of different parts of the business community and even the not-for-profit and governmental community uh, and it was a good way to um, work with some of the same people but get some variety too like I had different seniors yeah. and different managers and so I learned different things from different people and you know KPMG taught me how to write <laughs> like the, the the review comments on audit work papers and the, KPMG taught me how to add and how to type. I mean, at that time we used 10 keys and we used to have to like foot ledgers and <laughs> we, we just were starting to get uh, computers like the Apple Macintosh. And, and I remember just being so frustrated with some of that mechanical stuff that I learned system 2190 and how to write computer audit programs just because I thought there's got to be an easier way. And I learned how to do macros in Excel because it's like, oh, there's got to be an easier way. And um, it was fun to have the feeling of empowerment when you're one of three or four people on an audit. And it's like, okay, if we can make this work better, (laughs) why not? There's like no one to go ask. Or you just go do it. Yep. So, Brian, is there any uh, good stories or anything memorable from those first couple of years in audit that uh, that kind of sticks out to you? Well, in a small we we merged with Maine Herman when I was a senior accountant, and we went from the small office of forty into a group of two hundred and fifty combined, and it was one of Maine's biggest uh, offices. So that was a really unique experience. Uh, I had had three partners in total at KPM at Pete Marwick and there were 20 partners plus at Maine Herman. So all of a sudden we have 23 or 24 partners and 250 people. And uh, it was an interesting dynamic to live through an integration. Um, the good thing is I, I was coming up to the ranks of managers. So I got a lot of new clients added to my portfolio, which was fun, like shipping companies and mm-hmm. trucking companies and road aggregate companies and, and I like learning. At the other hand, it was hard to kind of watch the personal dynamics of cultural integration. Uh, I saw that firsthand. Mm-hmm. And um, but it was a good it was a good environment. I got to do campus recruiting, and that was fun. I led that for a while. Uh, I helped with some resource scheduling, so I started to see how the office worked. Um, but you know, probably the other like super memorable thing for me is. I'd been trying to explore opportunities outside the office to go try some other things. And I'd applied Mm -hmm. for years to, you know, put my hand up for department of professional practice. And one one day my partner came in and said, Brian, would you ever have an interest? And I'm like, Mike, I've been putting it on my career counseling form every year for the past seven years. (laughs) Of course I have an interest. Like I'd love to go, but you know, I knew nothing about it. And that, that's kind of a, an element of my career. I knew nothing about college, but I went anyhow. I knew nothing about public accounting, but I took a job there anyhow. I knew nothing about auditing, but I started to learn audit. 
I knew mm -hmm. nothing about DPP, really, other than it's in New York City, and that sounded kind of cool. But yeah. I, did, I did it anyhow. And um, I think embracing the unknown and taking chances where you can learn and grow uh, has been something that's worked really well for me in my career. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads into where I was thinking my next question, which is you're sitting here as a national sector leader of IAM in charge of some of our biggest accounts in the, over the globe. How did you get from small towns, small clients up to, you know, top of the top of the hill here, you know, running some of our biggest, some of the biggest clients in the world? Like there had to have been some pretty amazing steps in between to get you from there to here. Well, you know, uh, I've been incredibly lucky and uh, usually just took advantage of some chances that happened to go my way. And it wasn't really about me, but the, uh, it, it is kind of amazing. I, I remember uh, my sister-in-law was home probably my first Christmas of joining the firm and we were talking and, mm -hmm. and uh, like I said, my brother was a professor of theater and he ultimately became a college university president, but um, you know, completely different. So I was saying, Hey, this, this thing is kind of cool. Like they make partners and partners make like a couple hundred grand a year. And what well, you can really, <laughs> you can do something amazing. And I, and they started me at 17500 I mean, can you believe it? That's like more money than I ever dreamt of coming from where I came from. Wow. Uh, it was as much money as my father made after his entire career was where I started. And, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, so I remember kind of saying, though, the idea of like you could make maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars someday. And I never dreamt that I would like – ultimately get to do what I've done. I've always wanted to be a partner for some reason. Um, I just found the appeal in that, mm -hmm. uh, being a business owner and trying to own a, and, and drive and grow a business. But the way it's worked out for me was not part of the game plan. I can just guarantee you that. <laughs> yeah. I, I just took the next step. Like when I was a senior, I wanted to do well to become a manager. When I was a manager, I wanted to do well to become a senior manager. Yep. When I went to DPP, I wanted to learn about accounting, and I wanted to understand how the firm worked. And when they put me into OGC for a rotation, I was like, really? I know nothing about this. But then I wanted to do a good job at how do we defend ourselves from audit failures in litigation. And I learned about that. One thing led to another, and I, I'm, I'm a big believer that you embrace the opportunity of a new assignment, even if it doesn't seem like it's what's logical for you. You learn from it, you do your best at it, you grow from it, because you never know how that's going to add to some future thing. And that's really been the story of my career, is all these things kind of came along and I did them, and then somehow you look back and it's like, wow, those all kind of have come together to make me good at what I am now. And, mm -hmm. and I can't really explain it, but it's the, it's my experience. Yeah. Brian, you kind of seem like you're the, uh, the king of the old adage of you got to be comfortable being uncomfortable and kind of adapting to any situation. Yeah. You know, and I think not listening to 
the objections of others <laughs> about the mm -hmm. status quo. So what I mean by that is, you know, I, I had this opportunity when I was in DPP after going to the SEC and I was, I decided I wanted to try something other than audit and move into to, uh, deal advisory. Mm -hmm. That time it's called transaction services, brand new group. We just formed it. There were 20 people in the group and I raised my hand and said, yeah, I want to be part of that. I want to, I want to help support that. I'd really like M and A. And I had a senior partner kind of say, Brian, you're throwing your career away, right? This is wow. going to like, you've worked so hard in audit. You went to DPP, you went to the SEC, you came back to DPP as a partner. You should be like on one of our top accounts as a second audit partner or in an audit role. If you do this, you're going to ruin your audit career. Um, and I did it anyhow. And it just felt like the right thing. And by doing that, I got to learn a ton about M&A. I got to learn a ton about how to build a practice, how to grow a team, how to manage people, how to try to mentor and develop people into the partnership, mm -hmm. how to invent new offerings, how to go call on customers regularly, because how, how to hunt and kill. Because <laughs> yep. you know, when you're in advisory, you, you, you eat what you hunt. Um, and, you know, no one's giving you anything. So it, it created a lot of good skills. Um, and, and I remember being offered the role of running the industry for advisory and industrial manufacturing. I was like, wow, I'm really good at what I'm doing now, but I have to go learn Oracle and SAP and risk and controls and what we do in supply chain and what we do in, in transportation logistics. And I don't know anything about any of that stuff. I mean, <laughs> how, how I'm giving up what I'm really, really, really good at and embracing something I know nothing about, I'm probably not going to be very good at that. Um, but I think the more you take those leaps of faith and you trust your intuition and you, you build, or I've built confidence that I'm not saying I can do anything, but I can try anything. I can try anything. And, and I'll probably grow and learn from it, even if I fail. And that, that's amazing advice. Um, and I think, Brian, you're, you're, you're being a little humble with some of your stories. I believe you actually started the accounting advisory group in the U.S. Is that correct? Yeah, well, you know, it, it, it was an interesting time. I'd just come back from the SEC, which I loved that fellowship. That was an awesome experience. It was a great honor to work uh, for the U.S. government in that yeah. role. And I met so many really talented people, and I learned a ton. Um, and I found I really like this idea of helping on these complex transactions. Remember, I said I like law. So, mm -hmm. you know, reading merger agreements, understanding how they work, you know, I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. And I came back and we just started transaction services and they needed a technical account to help go call on private equity firms. And I was doing that for a while. And it was pretty clear that if we didn't find a way to make money at it, sooner or later, they wouldn't need me to do that role and I'd then have to go find a home and I just cut all the cords from audit. Right. <laughs> so yeah. a bit of it is, you know, healthy to cut all the safety net out from under you. Cause then it, it's the mother of invention. Right. So I was looking around and we're like, how can we make money using accounting advice 
And again, people are like, why would anyone ever hire you when they can go to their audit firm and get all the advice for free? And this was in 1998. And so we started finding that we had clients that were doing unique transactions and the audit team wanted some extra help and we found a way to, to use some of the expertise and knowledge that I had and others to help those audit teams unbundle services. Basically, bill separately for unique work by bringing new mm -hmm. team members in to help them with complex transactions. And that was really fun and I loved doing it. Um, worked on some of our best accounts doing that. And then Carbondoxy came along and prohibited auditors from doing that kind of stuff for their clients, right? You no yeah. longer get your client accounting advice. So right place, right time. We had the right platform set up. We had three years of experience doing it. We could then just go market to non-audit firms yeah. and we hit a huge success. And, you know, we started out with pullings of interest and then we moved into carve-outs for sales uh, by companies, so purchases and sales of business units, and those are kind of bread and butter. Then we got into statements and fraud investigations and reconstructions and new accounting standard implementations, and IFRS came along. Mm -hmm. uh, and we built a really nice portfolio of uh, experts, but I got to tell you, like, it's just all about recruiting good people who are very talented at what they do and giving them a vision and giving them some so they can succeed and then all of a sudden you have a practice that's kind of how it works well that's uh that, that's pretty admirable what you're able to do there um and kind of switching gears here a little bit i mean in order to have the career you've had at kpmg um there has to be some 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 give and take with the work-life balance i know that's something that we all talk about is being able to work hard to be able to drive our goals but also not lose sight of family or other things we like to do outside of work so um, when, I mean, if you have, when have you struggled to work with work-life balance and what would be your advice to somebody that's currently struggling and yet still trying to build their career up? Yeah, I, tr I struggle every day with work-life balance. Um, so I, we're, we're here in COVID time and uh, it's the longest I've ever been home. Yeah, I literally traveled from year one you know, all my career, they'll call it 35 and a half years of travel. Um, mm -hmm. That is probably the hardest element of work-life balance for me. Um, you know, I had the, the opportunity or the, uh, the learning experience of um, my first marriage not working out and going through divorce and a young child from that marriage who, you know, kind of grown up as a far away dad and it's it's a humbling experience to go through that kind of thing but it's also a bit of a wake-up call and um, so what I have to do now I have three sons at home I have you know my second wife we have a dog uh, <laughs> you know I try to find the right balance to make sure I'm showing up for them you know that when I work I work when I'm not working I try to be available for them try to put some boundaries around my time limits uh, if if my workload's heavy, I'll do it at the detriment of my sleep and not my family. Uh, I really try to keep weekends free for uh, downtime, person time, family. Uh, I love to work out, so I fit that in every day. That's something good for me. 
but it it's a challenge because look i'm i have i have a career it's not a job i i'm a partner so i'm an owner so i'm thinking about the firm and our people and our clients and how we become better and grow and more competitive you know all the time like i it's just mm-hmm. it's it's you know a big portion of my life but it's not my life right and and so the the key is how to make sure that I can find ways to do the other parts of my life, the fun things I like to do, to spend time with my family, to spend time with developing friends mm-hmm. uh, in work and outside of work, um, to work on my wellness, uh, take care of myself. And I remember a story from my new partner class dinner. We had this event at the... Uh, Natural History Museum in uh, the Upper East, Upper West Side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Speaker and the speaker said, "Brian, you know, all of you, you're going to have some glass balls and some rubber balls in life, and you got to learn how to juggle them all. And the rubber balls are things like money and career and work. You drop one of those, you can bounce back. The glass balls are your health, your friends, and your family. You drop those." They don't bounce back. And I always remember that. And that's from 1997. I can't remember what my wife asked me earlier today, but I remember that story. (laughs) I like that because everyone talks about juggling the balls, but the rubber versus glass, that kind of hits home. Um, so then, uh, the, one of the other things that I wanted to hit on, Brian, was you talked about recruiting the right people and, you know, building the firm for success in the future. And, you know, 2020 has been a very interesting year, uh, but we're still trying to build this firm to be successful. And I'm optimistic as I'm sure as you as an owner, optimistic about the firm as you move forward. What are the keys to making sure KPMG stays relevant and successful moving forward? Yeah, that's a hard question. So, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this is a people business. We are all about the people. We we have to take care of people because it's our best strategic asset, human capital. Um, we have to motivate our people because that's how you get ingenuity and ideas and innovation. Mm-hmm. Um, the longer you can retain people and provide career path for them, the more stable your firm is. And, and you have to have a good culture that allows people to thrive. And, um, you know, it's interesting as, as I've grown up, like I told you where I came from, there there were no African Americans in my hometown. There were very few Asian Americans. It was kind of the the kids of the doctor who happened to come to the local hospital where my parents worked. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it was not a diverse community at all. Um, but as, as I've grown, uh, I'm still learning a lot about diversity and really the issues of others and and to get more empathy about the issues and struggles of others and how lucky I've got it and how lucky I've been given the opportunities in my life. So I just try to give that back, right? Because if if we create opportunities for people who, like me, are coming into this game without a whole lot of tailwind, right, they're basically... Not, never done this before. Maybe their parents didn't go to college. Maybe they're not coming from the right uh, background that most people say, oh, that's an attractive candidate. But if we give them an opportunity and 
feed them the tools mm-hmm. and trust them, uh, you never know what can happen, right? Because if people looked at me on the surface in 1984 around my potential, they would have sold me short because I sold, I sold myself short. Um, you know, and I think it was having these opportunities. The other thing is we are a global firm serving global customers or competing in a global marketplace. If, if we can't relate to the needs and issues that our clients have mm-hmm. and who their people are, we're not going to be able to serve their needs. And the only way you can relate to that is you have diversity of thinking, diversity of experience, diversity of, of ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, diversity of empathy. Because uh, it's really hard to go somewhere else. I get to travel for work a lot. It's really hard to show up and not be sensitive and in tune with local phrases, local ideology, the holiday schedule that they have. Mm-hmm. Uh, when they say a fancy dress party in England, that means a Halloween party, costume party here, right? <laughs> You're like, fancy dress? I don't own any fancy dresses, right? But, um, you know, so the more relate to others and see the value in their differences, the stronger we are at being able to compete and serve our client needs. Yeah, no, that's, that's absolutely inspiring. And, and you talk about empowering our people. I think that's exactly how we're going to, we're going to achieve what, what you've just described. Um, I know we're, uh, we're kind of finishing up at the end here, Brian, but, uh, is there any uh, advice you'd like to leave us or things you like to live by that you can provide with your years of experience and uh, plethora of, uh, of adventures? Well, I remember my college roommate who worked at the firm for a couple of years and then he left and he went on to uh, become the chief investment officer of MedLife and has had a great career. And Richard said, Brian, you know, um, there's, there's two people in this office who are probably going to make partner one day. That person over there is the fair-haired child of the, the office. He gets all the best accounts. Everyone loves him. You're the hard worker. You're going to make it by hard work. And um, it's kind of true. Like, I think showing up, working hard, trying to be more concerned about making others successful than your own personal success, trying to help others succeed, making opportunities for others, putting others first, um, putting the client first, always trying to think about what's best for our client and trust Mm -hmm. that at the end of the day, that'll be what's best for our firm and what'll be best for you personally. And, you know, being nice to people, uh, being competitive and wanting to win, but not at all costs. And, And having like a moral center that you build your life around. Uh, and so I have an 18 year old son and I've been trying to think, how do you, how do you counsel a, a, a new man, mm-hmm. <laughs> an 18 year old man? What would I, what would I have liked to have known at the time? And I've, I have been kind of putting some thoughts down on stuff. I want to write him a, a note that I hope he will keep. Um, but who knows, but I, I just wrote this list one day when I was traveling and it's in my top 10 <laughs> things I wish I would have heard 
Uh, first, live ethically and honorably, number one. Number two, know your values. Number three, tell the truth. Number four, work hard. Number five, take advantage of time. Number six, always learn. Number seven, don't be afraid to try something new. Number eight, think before you speak. Number nine, be kind, tolerant, patient, and loving. And number 10, help others. And I got to tell you, I do not live those perfectly today, but I like having it as my goal. Yeah, that's a that's an awesome list. And thank you for sharing the list and also that other information with us, Brian. That's uh, that's really special. Um, as we wrap up here, Brian, uh, I'd like to say thanks for coming on to the podcast, but we do something special with each of our guests, and that is do our signature lightning round where we ask them five questions, nothing you can prepare for, and just answer the first thing that comes to mind. Uh, are you ready for that? Go for it. Uh, number one, what is your favorite kitchen smell? Pasta. Love it. Um, okay, number two. Uh, does your current or your past car have a name? And if so, what is it? It does not have a name. It's just my Porsche. Your Porsche. Well, that's a pretty nice name, I'd say. <laughs> that um, car is an awesome go-kart. It's so fun. I love it. <laughs> what kind of Porsche? 911. It's an old one, but it's so fun. Um, okay, number three. Uh, if you could have a beer with one person from history, dead or alive, who would it be? Ooh, that's a good one. Um... Abraham Lincoln. What do you think you'd speak to him about? Just how hard it was and how he was able to keep the energy to want to reconcile the country. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, that makes a lot of sense, especially now in, in the, our current environment. Yeah. Uh, okay, number four. What is your favorite vacation spot? The beach. Any specific beach? Uh, well, I've come to love New Smyrna Beach because we just got a place down there. Oh, awesome. Followed very closely behind by the mountains and skiing in Colorado. Hard to beat those. Um, all right. Well, uh, and one last question. What is something that's currently very popular that annoys you? Social media. Social media. <laughs> love it. Are you have Facebook or Instagram or anything, Brian? Uh, I try not to follow it. I think it's uh, it's corrosive and negative, and, and just the more and more I find you got to get into real dialogue, and it's not dialogue. Well, I do appreciate the honesty and the candor with that, and um, just like to say thanks from myself and the rest of the Chicago office for coming on the podcast, sharing your story, and providing us with some wisdom. You bet, Peter. Hope to talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Shot Chat Podcast. For more information about Brian's story or his journey at KPMG, please contact Brian Heckler at bheckler at kpmg.com. If you like what you heard today, spread the word. And if you or someone you know has a great story that you think we should hear about, please contact Aaron Bailey at ebailey at kpmg.com or myself at prameholt at kpmg.com.